Support for Small Joys comes from the Columbus Foundation, celebrating the creativity that inspires and strengthens the Central Ohio community every day. More at columbusfoundation.org. From WSU Public Media, this is Small Joys. I'm Hanif Abdurraki. For this episode, my guest is Jeff Smith. Jeff is a comic book writer and illustrator who is best known for his award-winning fantasy series, Bone. Bone ran for over a decade and was published by Jeff's own company, Cartoon Books. Netflix is currently turning Bone into an animated series. When we recorded our conversation, Jeff was in the middle of a successful Kickstarter campaign to launch a new graphic novel called Tuki, a story about humanity two million years ago. Jeff grew up in central Ohio and today splits his time between Columbus and a home in Key West, Florida. I spoke to Jeff from his home in Florida. We began our talk by discussing our shared love of reading comic strips in the Sunday newspaper as kids. You know, I'm interested first to kind of talk about your relationship with comics through particularly the comic strip. And I I'm interested in this in part because I grew up uh, waiting for Sundays because that is when the Columbus Dispatch comic section was in color. That was kind of the the idea of the comics coming fully to life for me. Um, yeah, the ones yeah. that I saw during the week enlivened in a certain way. And I'm wondering your your first kind of relationship with comics or comic strips that kind of got you excited. Oh, very much just like you. Uh, those the Sunday funnies was. Um, a very big event for me. My dad, before I could even read, my dad would read them to me. Um, and it, my, one of my favorite ones, ironically, was like Henry. I don't know if you remember Henry. He's like oh, a yeah. bald kid with a mouth. It was a completely wordless comic. But uh, I always loved trying to follow that, you know, through the panels and everything. Uh, but Peanuts was the biggest for me. Because uh, I was um, I was like five and six when the first couple of uh, peanut specials, the Christmas special and whatever the next one was came right, out. Right. And I was hooked. I was hooked. So I had a, I, in fact, I taught myself to read with peanuts. My, when my dad wasn't around to read to me, I had some little peanuts uh, paperbacks that were like 45 cents, like back then. And uh, I still have, I still have that copy. I taught myself to read from comics. I mean, is there a, is there a comic character that you felt that you you felt connected to that you related to, and has that character stayed the same throughout your life, or has it evolved? Well, I don't know. I, well, you know, most characters are you are able to slip into them. Like Bugs Bunny uh, captures um, a side of you that you kind of want to be. You want to be that that fast <laughs> or have magic powers. Um, uh, and I, I, at that, at that age, when I was reading peanuts, I mean, Snoopy and Charlie Brown were everything to me. They were, those characters were talking about things that you couldn't hear anywhere else. Like Charlie Brown going on the playground, um, and being too, too embarrassed to talk to the little red haired girl, or just in general, when all the other kids humiliated him, just you saw that look on his face with just the two little dot eyes on the squiggly line mouth and you knew his stomach hurt you knew exactly what he was feeling and that that was ex- was very powerful to me you just didn't see that on 
you know, Gilligan's Island or whatever. <laughs> so comics was where I kind of found a, found some kind of connection to the to the outside world. But did you kind of also? So I, of course, I we're, I would like to talk about Bone in the process of Bone, and I'm wondering if you had other influences that impacted you beyond the world of comics that allow you to kind of build worlds and have these kind of rich and enduring narratives in the work that you have uh, in the work that you do, because it couldn't have just been all comics that you were kind of like, you know, basing your work around or building your work around. Yeah. Oh, you were, you were totally right. No, I went, um, I mean, I learned to read from comics, but I quickly moved to other kinds of books, you know, uh, you know, adventure stories like uh, The Shadow or Doc Savage or any of those kind of fantasy books were real big for me when I was like, in middle school. I also really got into classics. I very early on got into like Huckleberry Finn and, uh, well, I don't know if you'd consider Sherlock Holmes a classic, oh, but I guess I would. Yeah. Were, yeah. And, and, uh, and, by the time I was in high school, I was really into mythology. So I, I loved uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey. And of course, uh, the, the summer between my junior year and the high school year, I went to Worthington High School. And when it was just, it was just one, when there was only one Worthington. It was just one. Yeah. I, re- I had a friend who had been bugging me since middle school to read The Lord of the Rings. And I just, it just didn't grab me. The Hobbit just didn't grab me at all. And he finally said, skip the Hobbit, just read the Lord of the Rings. And I read the Lord of the Rings and blew my mind. Was There were two other fantasy influences of completely different media mediums. One was uh, Heavy Metal, the magazine came out. And it was the Heavy Metal nowadays, if someone isn't familiar with the old stuff, is a little more, it's almost soft, soft core. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. back then, it was these geniuses out of uh, Belgium and France, uh, Mobius and Bilal and, and a whole crew of these people doing real fantasy stuff. I mean, far out fantasy stuff, but completely intelligent and for grownups. It was, it blew my mind. So that was, that was blow my mind. Number two was uh, seeing heavy metal, these comics done in an intelligent way that I had never seen before. And number three, and for the knockout or for the or for the home run um that was the summer star wars came out 1977 so those three together uh uh, grown-up comics the lord of the rings and star wars and that's that's it that's you take that and pack them together in a big snowball and that's that's bone. I would love to hear from you about the kind of, you know, I hear great stories about the summer Star Wars came out. I was not alive for it. I missed it by uh, a handful of years. But what was it like in America at that moment? Particularly, I'm interested in the uh, the kind of obsession with space that took over in the 70s, in part due to due to the, the Star Trek TV show getting a, 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 a reburst and a reboost. And then, of course, Star Wars uh, becoming yeah, part of the cultural yeah. zeitgeist. Well, uh, you know, just, you know, less than 10 years earlier, we just landed on the moon for the first time. And all of the 60s were very much, uh, I mean, I was a little kid. I was born in 1960. But I grew up with, you know, the Mercury program. And, oh, there's another capsule. John Glenn 
orbiting the earth. You know, I, I, I mean, throughout the 60s, it was a constant um, ratcheting up of the excitement culminating in landing on the moon in 69. And that continued on uh, into the mid 70s. Uh, my, my memory of what my mindset or what everybody was kind of like where they were at was Star Wars came out of nowhere because movies had become uh, much more realistic. And there was a lot more anti-hero stuff, a lot more Bonnie and Clyde and um, uh, the Wild Bunch, that kind of stuff. It was a little, it was much darker, a lot, of, a lot, a lot more realistic, a lot grittier. And then all of a sudden Star Wars came on and I remember being excited. I was, I think I was actually, I was in a movie theater and saw the a trailer for Star Wars and it had really quick cuts of, you know, the, you know, the Wookiee and their heads switching back and forth during the fight when they were, where they were in space battling, you know. Um, and I just remember thinking, wow, I've never seen, I, I've never seen what I'm seeing right now. I mean, they, those were, those were good costumes, like the Wookiee. I mean, that was amazing. And I can't believe somebody was going to make something that I would have to go to comic books to see. So I, I was very interested in to go, go see it. But again, when the, when the movie started, the first time I saw star Wars and the, the star Wars logo, you know, explodes onto the screen and then recedes off into the distance with a fanfare and everything. My first thought was that was kind of, that's kind of bizarre lettering to have on a, I don't, what am I, what am I looking at? That's sort of some kind of modern, I didn't know what I was looking at. And then, and that thing flies over your head. I don't know if, I don't know if anyone that wasn't there could even understand <laughs> what a mind trip that was. That first, that little ship goes over your head. And th this was the first time there was any kind of sound system that, brought stuff from the back of the theater to the front of the theater and that kind of surround sound. Um, and th that little ship flying off, you know, and the, and the beep, beep, beep going after it, and you're like, Hey, that's, that's the best animated spaceship I've ever seen in my life. And then and that big cruiser comes overhead and I'm telling you what, everybody just fell about the place. Nobody even knew what was happening. Our brains melted and, and they kept going and kept going. It was startling. And that, that was it. It didn't matter what happened from then on. It was just great from that moment onward. Did you ever, I mean, so now, you know, I don't, can you talk a bit about Bone as, 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 a, as being developed or is that still kind of under wraps to some degree? It's, well, I mean, there's not much to talk about. We're still writing it. Right. So it's, we've, uh, we've assembled a team. We got waylaid by uh, the lockdown and COVID and everything. We lost about, we lost pretty much eight or nine months before we realized we're, we're just going to have to do this uh, virtually. But we, we were able to assemble a team of some really, really good people. Everybody I wanted, I got on the team. And um, so we have a head writer. We have, all that, we have uh, you know, the people in charge of the visual development. But we're still in the writing process to break the, to break the stories and figure out um, how many seasons we're going to do. And they're, we're going to follow the books fairly closely, making some adaptations. So right now, I mean, all I can say is that we, we've, we've kind of decided it's going to be two seasons. Um, and each episode will be about 25 minutes. And uh, pretty much it'll, 
very loosely speaking, uh, each episode will follow one or two issues of the comic book where, where that makes sense. And then sometimes, sometimes we'll add new things and sometimes we're going to, we take some things out. I mean, so I guess a big question I have is how does a writer's room function during a pandemic? Um, because there's, <laughs> there's no, you know, like I've seen, I, I've seen how this works or I've had insights to how this works. But the, it, it feels like it requires such an up close kind of physicality, even of ideas. Or in the thing about virtual, the virtual spaces that everyone kind of stumbles over each other talking, or everyone kind of bounces off each other. You know, it's not as um, it can feel less vibrant than perhaps it deserves to feel. Yeah, I actually don't know. We haven't gotten there yet. There's not really a writer's room, so to speak, anymore. Yeah, it's not like the old days but um a year ago right. <laughs> but, uh, um well right now we're just we're we have we, there's a team working to to break the story and that's once it starts writing it kind of goes out to each person and then there's like a a, a uh, how do you describe it uh, like a, we make comments or or uh, so i'm a uh I'm a creator of the show and executive director, so I'll probably talk to everybody when they started. Uh, I did when I was sitting in lockdown. I did storyboard out the first episode, and um, and so I kind of like was able to uh, set a kind of a uh, a tone, which is just very much like the comic. And there's they are very respectful of the comic, and yet not afraid to add jokes or lines and every every line they added that wasn't in the comic book made me laugh out loud so that's a good <laughs> so i want to talk about because a part of this is maybe getting a part of this process of this show and me as an interviewer is uh having curiosity about how creative people are surviving and or thriving in their own way during the pandemic which i i think for some of us has felt um almost untenable, you know, because of the lack of, for me, it has been, I think, the lack of change in the repetitive nature of my living that has been uh, a little bit jarring, though, you know, uh, certainly could be worse, but still a little bit jarring. I, I'm wondering how you've renewed yourself um, and how you've renewed your excitement for whatever your work is or may be during, during the the maybe your life has not been as stagnant as, as, as mine, but uh, how have you, how have you renewed yourself and, and stayed excited about not only your work, but just your day-to-day -day living? I, I, I think that uh, it was, I think what the pandemic did is it robbed us of spontaneity. Mm -hmm. I've, the thing I missed the most is to go to with my wife, Jaya. So, let's go, let's go get some, let's go get some fish tacos over a DJ's clam shack or something like that. And you just, we just couldn't do it for over a year. Um, I mean, you could get carry out, but it's not, the, it's not the same kind of thing, you know? So um, on the other hand, um, I think artists, or at least for me, I mean, cartoonists, uh, <laughs> we spend most of our life sheltering in place anyway. So when it came to that, um, that part didn't really change that much. I sit at my drawing table in my studio and I, all I have is a stereo, you know, that's it. So that's, that part didn't change. I was able to, 
was, I was able to drum up um, the regular kind of energy and I don't want to make it, I don't want to be glib about it because it was really, it was, it was deadly for some people. But uh, yeah, I was able to get through that. And, and as an artist, I, I, what I did is I, and if I dug out a project that I'd started uh, about five years ago, I started a web comic and it was based, it took, it takes place 2 million years ago uh, in Africa. And there's this period there in Africa when uh, multiple human species existed at the same time. And at that one juncture, 2 million years ago, there was a lot of interesting things that drew me to it. I'm a, I'm a buff for, evolution and stuff like that. So I, I've, I've been aware of this and love it. Um, there were actually some of the original, uh, you know, like Lucy, oh, yeah. the famous Lucy, she was an Australopithecine. There were still a few Australopithecines um, about at, at the two million years ago, Mark. Wow. There was also Homo habilis, who was the first, uh, first species of uh, hominids to invent the hand axe. But the crucial part, is the great traveler homo erectus and fire starter shows up and he can control fire and this is it this is the moment this is this is the fulcrum this is the crossroads for the planet pretty much and i kind of came up with this idea in my mind like well okay we've decided to use fire but what do the other species think about all this, right? <laughs> and I kind of came up with this idea that the other ones would decide not to pursue fire and to actually be think that it's blasphemous to use fire, that you've somehow stolen something from the gods. And so I have uh, this group of habilines. Uh, they they will hunt and kill anyone who's found using fire. So that's so that's so I had the story and I didn't quite gotten it all pieced together. And with really nowhere to go or not much to do. I just sat down at my drawing board and I pulled this stuff out and I, I was able to rework it and it all kind of came together. And I not only, I had maybe 80 pages. I ended up with two, two separate graphic novels that were a hundred to 150 pages each. Uh, and so I, I was, so I was like, what do I do with these? <laughs> and, and, um, at that same time, uh, I had some friends that I'd known in the comic from the comic book world for many years, and they were doing Kickstarters. And they said, you got to put them on Kickstarter. So I'm in the middle of a Kickstarter right now. Uh, it's going pretty well. Uh, it's called Tukey Fight for Fire, if you ha if you ever have any interest. In absolutely. Anything. Absolutely. I mean, is is did you go into the, the pandemic? First off, I have a question about stereo, but still staying around this. Did you, did you go into the <laughs> pandemic thinking you were going to create something new? Like when you set out, when you, when you went back to revisit that project, was it just the revisitation that you were interested in? Or were you kind of like, I'm going to set out to create something brand new? Well, I, yeah, well, I, 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 before the pandemic set in, I had, I was already attempting to like, build something out of this idea but it hadn't really worked and um i wasn't getting much encouragement on it so um no i i wasn't even sure and when the pandemic hit to be quite honest i wasn't thinking i was even going to go back to tukey i i think i spent the month of march pretty much just drinking <laughs> <laughs> but then after that i kind of shook shook it off and uh pulled the pages back out and somehow I saw the whole thing 
completely differently. And the, 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 there was a real warmth that returned to the story and a mystery. And I was like, oh, oh, you know, just it kind of just came back. I was not expecting to do something as new as what uh, I ended up with, and certainly not as much. I want to, you, you said your, your desk, you have just a stereo. Or, and so that that piques my interest as a as a music lover. Do you play music on it while you work? Are you someone who needs to work in silence? What's the thing? No, I play it. Uh, the only time, I mean, I play it all the time. Um, the The only time I have to have uh, silence is when I'm writing. Right. I do have right. to have silence, or or I can have. Um, classical music or maybe soundtracks film soundtrack music yeah as long as there's no, no words theory. yeah i can't do language and no language words I can, yeah yeah I, I can i can work to that in fact sometimes the right kind of music can kind of help you get to where you're going um but uh but then once i'm once i've once i'm drawing i can i can have anything on i i, I listen to all sorts of different music and um and and actually the last 10 years or so, I actually have a little, I watch movies on my laptop, uh, which I couldn't do in the nineties. That didn't really, wasn't a, yeah, it wasn't, wasn't a lot. It wasn't a thing. I, I didn't have that. It wasn't a thing. All of a sudden my, you know, a video screen slipped into my studio and I could watch uh, but what I did, what I would do is when I'm inking, I've already, you know, I've written it. I've, I've thumbnailed it. I've, traced it up, I tightened the pencils, and now I'm inking. At this point, I've been over the material uh, three or four times, and I can I can ink and watch movies. There are, there are directors that definitely inspire me and who even have repeated um, viewings. Are, I, th- these films still reveal storytelling secrets to me. I mean, I like Spielberg, uh, Kurosawa, John Ford, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, Miyazaki, all, there's way more. There's way more than that. That's just what I was able to rattle off there. Uh, but I, what I really like are like Criterion films that have like supplementary material where they talk about the film or uh, director's uh, commentary. I love learning. I love learning all the little secrets of why they, why they did what they did and what kind of changes they would make on the spot, you know, on the day they would make a decision to change something because that kind of thing helps me realize that it's okay when you're in the middle of a thing and you just, I need to make a change here. Or you have an accident, you make a mistake and you go, Oh, that, that accident's good. Keep that. Right. Right. What do you listen to? What's on your, what's in the stereo? Um, let's see. Well, I go, I get obsessive about stuff every now and then. And right now I'm really obsessive about Sam Cooke. So I, 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 I'm listening to a lot of Sam Cooke, uh, but then Spotify is great because then you can just start with uh, Sam Cooke and then just, it'll just go all, all sorts of places. I'm big on, on blues and R&B. Yeah. I'm a huge Beatles fan. Um, and I still like a lot of music from the 60s because that was really informative for me when I was growing up. You know, I've been also listening to a lot of Sam Cooke lately. I've been spending a lot of time. No kidding. I watched that. Do- there was a documentary, the Sam Cooke documentary. I've, it my. I just that's that's the, I saw the same one. Yeah, that's what got me right. It's yeah. uh, you know, a weird pandemic thing for me. I think was that I documentaries have been my coping mechanism in some way. Um, and the Sam Cooke one is, uh, I mean, stunning and sad and. 
um, you know, I wanted to go back to some of, in a way I felt like I wanted to remember him as um, more than just sad, perhaps. I know, I know. I, I, I know I got to the end of that, the documentary the same way, but I, and I even bought like, a, there was a, there's a really good book by Peter Gronick called uh, Dream Boogie. I don't know oh, yeah. how to name that, but it's, that's, it's fantastic. And I'm reading it. And, um, and also, and I, and part of me kept thinking ahead to the end. Right. Right. And I said, stop that. I'm a Beatles fan and I listen to Beatles music and I read Beatles uh, books about the Beatles. And I never think about, I mean, I, I know John is assassinated and it's horrible. And I, I, it was horrible when it happened. I hated it. It was so sad, but I don't dwell on that. So I've managed to shift my thinking and I'm like, Sam Cook, I'm going at you like you're the Beatles. And I, I, I know something happens bad, but I'm going to just dig your music and your story when it's triumphant. Um, speaking of triumph, you know, a, a thing that always fascinated me and that I always loved about Bowen was that it's a, it's a, it's a, a triumph of self-publishing in a way. And I know that navigating the self-publishing world might have been different for you then than it is for younger writers now. But can you talk a little bit about that, your, 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 that decision to self-publish and the kind of uh, journey it took you on? And uh, if you feel triumphant, um, ending up here. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I, I started off, you know, I, I did a, a proto bone strip called Thorn and the Lantern right. for about four years. And my, my goal was to get it syndicated. Uh, in fact, I was actually running around New York visiting syndicates uh, like King Features or Tribune Media. Uh, around the same time that Bill Watterson was um, was trying to was shopping Calvin and Hobbes around, um, but one of my problems was my hero in comic strips was Walt Kelly. This guy he did Pogo, I love that strip, um, and so much about that world that Kelly built uh, and the language he used. I mean, once you cracked the Walt Kelly code, you you were swept away on a merry-go-round ride through a Lewis Carroll version of a swamp. It's, it was it was fascinating, but but more significantly for me as a cartoonist was Walt Kelly owned the copyright on his strips. Very few people did. Schultz didn't own the copyright on Peanuts. Uh, Watterson didn't own the copyright on Water uh, Calvin and Hobbes. Um, so when I went into uh, the syndicate's office with my with my wares, with my bundle of strips, uh, I, I, I was I was insistent. My hero owned his strips. I'm going to own my strips. Mm -hmm. That was unfortunately a deal killer. <laughs> <laughs> There's no way you're allowed to own your strips. I I have to. I still thank Walt Kelly to this day because that ended up working out really well for me. That I didn't get a deal with the syndicates, but it did force me to look around and see. Well, what can I do? And then I happened to step into a comic book store around 1986, which is when I was shopping um, my strip around and discovered this world of self-published comics or small uh, independent publisher comics like Fantagraphics. They had the, the Los Bros doing Love and Rockets. There was uh, Dave Sim was doing Cerebus. Uh, there was Eight Ball and... Dan Clow's uh, 
what did Dan Klaus, was he doing eight ball? I guess Dan Klaus was doing eight ball and uh, Peter Bag was doing hate. Anyway, uh, I, I grabbed all these magazines and I took them home and I read them and they were all black and white. They were all, they were all related to the underground comic scene that I was familiar with because I'm into comic books, uh, but they were different because the comics, the underground comics that I was thinking of, you know, they mostly showed up in the late sixties and early seventies. were all about, you know, sex, drug, and rock and roll. They were very much about re rebelling, um, stick it to the man. I'm going to draw comics that you can't do in, in real comics, you know, cause you can't draw sex and drugs and rock and roll. Right, right. But these were clearly underground comics, but they were the next generation. They were, they were not about rebelling anymore. They were about telling their own stories. And so I, it looked to me like, here's a group of cartoonists that are about being authors. They're not just about being, I mean, obviously I consider a lot of those old artists, uh, uh, creators to be artists. I'm not saying that, but this is a new shift in emphasis of, I want to tell my own stories with my own characters that I own um, and, and do it that way. And, I, I owned a little animation studio at the time. It was, it was okay. It was pretty, it was, it was successful. Uh, none of us were getting rich, but all of a sudden I went, I went home to talk to my wife, Vijaya. And I said, I want to sell the animation studio to my partners. I want to be part of this. What I see happening in comic book stores right now is this new golden age of creativity and comics. Because if you looked around in the comic book store, you saw all the stuff you expect to see, you know, Batman, Spider-Man, and Archie. But then there was all this other stuff. And the, the talent that you could see in these books was completely off the hooks. It was so much better than Batman and Spider-Man. And I wanted to be I wanted to be a part of that. And with my wife's help, who became my business partner and encouraged me to actually learn how to write a business plan. I actually did join that, um, that underground black and white comic scene. Yeah. And, um, I mean, do you have any, it's my last question before I, before we part ways here, do you have any advice for young art, you know, like Columbus home CCAD and, and I, I pop in there sometimes and I see so many folks, um, who are kind of aspiring to a journey of, you know, self-determination for their work, visual artists and, and comic artists and all that. Do you have any advice for those folks? Well, as you said, it's, it's a different world than the one I, I popped into, uh, back in the early nineties, there were probably 11 different distributors of comics, some of them national, some of them more regional. Um, so that meant there were 11 monthly catalogs that went out to all the comic book stores where they could see your stuff. So if one distributor didn't put you in its catalog, many others would. That was a little easier. On the other hand, <laughs> there wasn't a lot of support for us. So uh, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't a piece of cake, I can tell you that. We had to get on the road and, and try to um, get people to pay attention to us and trust us that we were going to deliver a comic book. I think today, uh, I, I, mostly in the world of comics, we, there, are, there are vehicles like Kickstarter or GoFundMe or Indiegogo um, that I think are viable places for a young cartoonist to prove 
that their book has value. Um, because there's, there's no gatekeepers. There isn't a, there isn't a, a distributor or, or I started to say a syndicate because there was definitely gatekeepers that would not let me in uh, because I wouldn't play the game the right way. Right. So uh, they, you can go out there on, on Kickstarter and, and get people's attention and prove that you're, you're worth. There's also uh, the web, you know, web comics, digital comics. Uh, what are some other ways? Oh, it's oh, as soon as this lockdown's over, honey, people have got to get back to gatherings, comic book shows mm-hmm. like Comic-Con International in San Diego or in Columbus, uh, uh, a show that I'm part of that I co-founded with uh, some other people called Cartoon Crossroads Columbus, CXC, that uh, gathering together with uh Everybody from the industry, you've got creators, you've got readers, you've got comic book retailers, you've got journalists and critics all together and things can happen there. Uh, and you can make friends who can tell you the mistakes they've made and support you. I, that's that's what I did. And then there's a newer version of that today that I would encourage everybody to just do it. And don't wait for anyone's permission to draw. I love that last bit. That is a perfect place to close out. Jeff Smith, thank you so much for joining me. I can't wait to see what becomes a bone and good luck with the process. All right. Thank you, Eddie. It was wonderful talking to you. At the end of every episode, I take some time to share one of my small joys, which this week has revolved around going to the bakery, the Chocolate Cafe, which is a bakery and coffee shop and just like a treat dispensary that I once lived next to, like directly next to, years and years and years ago when I had significantly less resources to spend time buying some of the goodies in there. I would often just take my computer and write in there due to the free Wi-Fi. I didn't have Wi-Fi in the apartment I lived in. I couldn't afford it. But I could afford like a little cup. I would get like a cup of hot chocolate, a small one, because it was really inexpensive. And I would nurse it for hours and hours and hours while writing the music reviews that I would get paid very little money to write at the time. And um, now it's a place that is a little out of the way for me in terms of where I live. But it's a place I love to go. It's a place I love to spend time. And I don't sit and write in there as often, but I always slide through and get treats that I take back to my house and eat very slowly. It feels like this has become a commercial for the Chocolate Cafe, but I do think it's one of my favorite kind of underappreciated spots in the city. Uh, It was a place when the pandemic and the lockdown was at its height, and we're still in it now, but I mean, when the pandemic was really impacting businesses, I would often go to the Chocolate Cafe and uh, see how they were hanging on and buy a thing here or there. And so It is good to see them, along with some other places in the city, kind of uh, burst back to life a little bit. And uh, it's a place that is near and dear to my heart. And you might be able to catch me in there sometime this summer if you are out and about. Small Joys is a production of WOSU Public Media. The show is produced and edited by Michael DeBonis. Nick Hauser is the Chief Content Director of Digital Media. Special thanks to Leticia Wiggins for editorial support. And thanks to everyone who's been supporting us on social media and giving us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. 
keep up your support. It is truly appreciated. And we'll be back next week with more Small Joys. Thank you.